0: This is the Activist Investing Today podcast, and I'm Ron Oral, your host. Today, I'm very pleased to have with me Jim McRitchie, who is probably the largest, if not among the largest, employers of non-binding shareholder proposals in the US today. Uh, Jim and I have talked on and off periodically for uh, seems like um, many, many years, and uh, really appreciate taking the time to speak with us. He's submitted hundreds of proposals over the past couple decades, and he also runs CorpGov.net. Which uh, provides news, commentary, and a network on a variety of corporate governance issues. McRitchie has submitted proposals on proxy access, seeking to get rid of supermajority voting provisions, which are uh, integral in a lot of other areas, and, uh, and, a, and a few other subject areas. Thank you, J- Jim, for taking a little time.
1: Well, Ron, it's a real honor to be on your podcast and uh, to reach out to a different audience that I normally uh, find through my own website. So. Okay.
0: All right. Awesome. Thanks for taking time, Jeff. Okay, so let's get right to it. The uh, I've been spending a lot of time at the U.S. Chamber, at uh, SEC me- Investor Advisory Committee meetings, and various different places. And it seems like the SEC is moving. You know, plan may soon move in the direction of of making it much more difficult to a resubmit proposals that receive very low vote counts, or b raise the threshold for submitting a proposal. you know, which currently, uh, uh, as most realists are sure know, is $2,000 in stock ownership to to submit the proposal. So one idea that's been floated around, I don't know if this is what the SEC will go with, but uh, it's an idea I've heard in the corporate community, and I think in some legislation on Capitol Hill as well that never went anywhere, um, that you would need 1% of a company to submit a proposal. So 1% seems like a very small amount, right? But except when you think about Companies like uh, Exxon, where which were influenced by some non-binding share proposals, incidentally, uh, where one percent of a three hundred seven billion market cap company is about, you know, three billion in stock. So that's significantly more than two thousand dollars share. Uh, I mean, uh, a proposal. So maybe uh, Jim, can you just walk us through what would be the impact if they raise the uh, the, the dollar ownership threshold for submitting proposals, and B, uh, the, the vote count you need to resubmit thresholds.
1: Yeah, if it, well, if it was anywhere near 1% to file, that would basically eliminate the whole thing because uh, you know, most of the shareholders' proposals come from retail shareholders. So there's John Shveden, Ken Steiner, myself, and then the other large ones are uh, a few public pension funds like the New York uh, City Controller, Calsters, CalPERS, and then there's a bunch of SRI funds uh, and then uh, religious groups. But if you take a, the largest uh, owner in that group, in their whole group of share owners, is CalPERS. So they have $380 billion. But when you look at their holdings at Exxon, they hold one-fifth of 1%. So, you know, 1% is, uh, you know, that's huge. And the only uh, funds that would be left or the only players left would be Vanguard, BlackRock, State Street, Fidelity, those huge mega funds. But in all of history, none of them have ever filed a proposal because you know they want to run those company 401k plans, and that would be that would be a yeah that would put them out <laughs> of business with those companies. So, and then as far as um, resubmissions, um, you know a lot of things take time. I mean, think about gay marriage. I mean, uh, you know when I was growing up, uh, gay marriage was unthinkable. It was it just didn't even cross people's mind that that was a possibility. But, uh, you know, 2004, Massachusetts passed a law, and then, you know, things cascaded. It happened fairly quickly. I'm sure that, you know, if you were gay and you wanted to get married, I'm sure it felt like it took a long time. But um, – or think about, you know, getting back to shareholder proposals. Think about um, – I've been filing proposals on um, – transparency in in political contributions oh yeah now when uh, judge Kennedy wrote uh, Citizens United decision he assumed that we already had that right well we don't have that right we got to go to each company and ask them and initially on we're getting very low votes I don't remember exactly you know I might have been getting somewhere down in the single-digit votes on uh, in my initial filings but last year I finally won one so I think 2020, I think we're going to see a lot more filings win because, you know, it's more top of mind uh, political contributions. But uh, especially social issues and even corporate governance issues, they take a while to catch on. So, you know, even now, uh, a lot of people think that uh, companies all over have majority vote standards for electing, Directors, but that's certainly not the case with uh, you know more than half of uh, I think it's 66 percent of midcaps do not have a majority vote standard.
0: And so maybe for our, our listeners who don't uh, follow the intricacies of this particular governance thing as closely as you and I do, can you maybe explain the importance of the majority vote? This is alternative; they have plurality vote, and then yeah. and uh, the issue is that. Uh, if you have a majority vote, then there's a there's a I guess more of an impetus on the company to have the uh, director resign um, if right. it's a majority. Right.
1: Vote. I mean, basically that's and actually I got that flipped. It's it's forty four percent at mid caps, but so forty four percent at mid caps still have a plurality standard. So if they get one vote, they get elected. Right, right. And that just doesn't seem reasonable, you know, because somebody could have voted by mistake.
0: So, so SEC Jay Clayton, uh, who's always talking about, you know, Mr. and Mrs. 401k, I think, and uh, retail voters, he he talks about how uh, he recently talked to the SEC's Investor Advisory Committee, which is a a group of institutional investors and other, you know, uh, 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 groups, um, uh, lobbyists, fir- firms, and various different uh, parties that uh, meet periodically at the SEC, and they submit recommendations to the SEC, and uh, the commissioners and chairman participates or listen in. And so he recently said that uh, he uh, he asked the SEC's committee whether submissions and resubmission thresholds for shareholder proposals are appropriately crafted to ensure that the proposals shareholder interests are aligned with those of a reasonable portion of the company's long-term investors. So I guess what he's suggesting is that, you know, these proposals should get, uh, you know, it sounds to me like he's suggesting that they should get, if before you propose them, there should be some sort of understanding that they would get a lot of support right away. But I guess your point is some of these require a long time to catch on and they never will get a chance if they, then if you didn't get to you know or the shoulder groups didn't get a chance to resubmit them even though they got very low votes initially is that,
1: right. is that funds point? funds own most of the shares today you know individual investors own very few and individual investors up to 95 percent of them don't vote based on how they get their uh, proxies delivered so funds uh you know oftentimes when they see a proposal they don't actually see a lot of the proposals. They come in and you know they're scanned electronically and they're basically voted electronically. And for a lot of funds, the default is, you know they have a proxy voting policy that they work out with ISS or Glass Lewis or whoever they use for their voting platform. And basically if they see a proposal of a certain type, then they vote for or against it. And you know if they see a proposal that they've never seen before, That the machine has never seen before, then usually what they will do is default to management, so they'll vote against. So you know, so for the first year, you're lucky to get any votes on a new type of proposal. So you know, I think uh, Chairman Clayton, I you know, I think he's sincere in his wish to you know help out Mr. and Mrs. 401. Okay, but you know that that doesn't
0: help him he's very focused on more ipos but that's a subject for another yeah another day yeah. um yeah. okay so uh we're doing actually a conference in london in february and esg is going to be a big topic that's the uh acronym for environmental social and governance uh issues which often take the form in, in these non-binding shareholder proposals i know you don't do really the environmental ones but uh i think uh, we're going to be talking about uh uh how there's been you know mobile, mobi- shareholders mobilizing uh focusing on issues such as uh the burning rainforest in in Brazil's amazon um the church of england and australian center for corporate responsibility teamed up to push bhp corp which on on env- which lists in london and australia on environmental issues um companies really don't want these environmental themed proposals uh you know this takes up a lot of costs a lot of difficulty for them um I don't know. I feel like this is the the SEC seems to be moving. You know, want to get these things off the table that they just don't want to these companies to have to deal with them. Basically, is that is that the sense you get?
1: Yeah, because that's what the chamber wants. That's what the National Association of Manufacturers wants, and uh, the Business Roundtable even. So, uh, but you know, I think that twenty five percent of funds that are invested now are invested kind of around ESG themes. And Jackie Cook at Morningstar uh, has done some great research in this area recently. So for example, she looked, you know, State Street started the She Fund and they, you know, put the little girl in bronze on Wall Street. And, you know, big deal It was uh, made a lot of press. But, you know, when you look at the She Fund's voting record, the She Fund didn't vote any differently on issues uh, with regard to women, than State Street did, and they voted against a lot of proposals that would have, uh, you know, asked for various reports or, you know, taken action to get more women to put or get more boards to put women on on their board uh, and uh, promote more women into higher ranks. So oh,
0: that's talking. interesting.
1: Yeah, and she also did these
0: there. non-binding proposals where they want the you know a lot of them I remember reading that want the companies uh, to uh, in their nomination committees to consider more women in their pool of right
1: in, in the more, pool right yeah, yeah, yeah that was a good more one more
0: consideration that's one I see a lot that's like if I go look at State Street and uh, there and the she voting record on those kind of proposals I might be surprised is that what you're yes.
1: saying yes yes you might be surprised she also did a look at the all the es you know now there's a lot of funds. That State Street and Vanguard and BlackRock have with ESG on the title Mm -hmm. so she looked at how those funds voted on ESG issues and they voted the same as the rest of the fund family so my answer to this is uh you know I've got a petition at the SEC asking them to require funds to disclose their votes uh, in real time and to do so in a way that'll be, you know, on a computerized uh, database so you can see and you can compare the votes of each um, fund. And, you know, I think Mr. and Mrs. 401k, uh, you know, when they can compare voting records, we'll see a lot more people demanding changes.
0: Just to be clear, this the current situation, I remember this was the last thing Harvey Pitt did as chairman of the SEC before <laughs> he left, was require the... Um what do you call it? the NPX? I think it's called right. uh, that's like once a year you have to disclose the, the data on your mm-hmm. voting, but it's very confusing. You know, BlackRock has so many different funds, you have to put them together. Um, and a few different groups kind of puts it together how the, uh, the big uh, index funds vote on different things from that data. But it's also very delayed. And, uh, you know, you don't find out till months after, let's say a proxy contest, what the it
1: vote is. It could be like a year. But, you know, if you've got $10,000, you can subscribe to Proxy Index and you can get that information. But, you know, most people don't have $10,000 to spend on a database so that they can see how their fund voted.
0: Yeah, I mean, as a reporter, that's uh, I would love to have real-time data on on a lot of the votes that uh, would help my reporting as well. <laughs> okay, yeah, we don't have a lot of time, serious. so just a couple things I wanted to go through. The SEC just put out some guidance and they plan to respond uh, respond to some corporate no-action requests. These are requests by companies to seeking to remove shareholder proposals or, or have them not be included for shareholders to consider. Um, with verbal response, So the SEC may respond verbally, um, or it may decline to state a view or you know on a particular request uh, to remove a shareholder proposal. Which makes you wonder what companies decide to they don't get any guidance from the SEC may decide to remove the shareholder proposal and just see if the, what the shareholder will do, you know, will they file a lawsuit to challenge that uh, when there's no guidance from the SEC? So I don't know. What do you think about this? I haven't really put that much thought into it yet, but it seems a
1: horrible, horrible idea. I mean, 1750 BC, Hammurabi put out a poll that said, here's what the laws are you know, and made it public. So people knew, you know, what the decision would be, uh, you know, if they broke the law or they knew what the laws were. So, you know, to, and in essence, these no action letters are, in essence, semi-judicial findings. And, you know, people say that, uh, you know, it's, you can go to court, but if you go to court, the court usually defers to whatever the SEC decided because the SEC staff, they know this stuff. They, they're the experts. And so when I got sued several times, uh, I remember in one case anyway, the, the judge questioned why the company went right to court instead of going through the no action process because, you know, he's basically making that argument that the SEC staff knew. Anyway, he, they threw out the case. And I think this will bring more court cases. And I just want to remind anyone, anyone from corporations that's listening to this, in the cases where they sued me, in every case, they awarded me court case, court um, court fees. You know, but I didn't have but any.
0: They, court fees. they had to cover the your costs, basically. For yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I defended myself, so I didn't have any. So, uh, but you know, somebody sues me again, I'm going to hire an attorney.
0: Right, but so, I mean, it seems like uh, they. Uh you know, it seems like this this could make it easier for companies to w- remove um, non-binding shareholder proposals from consideration uh, uh, when, you know, they, they we haven't got any guns from the SEC, or, yeah. you know, we got some verbal response that, uh, I don't know what that verbal <laughs> response is, you know, like yeah. they, they could say that the SEC told them it was okay to remove it, but yeah. it could be in writing, right, so you would understand what the SEC's, Everyone would under, would be on, understand exactly what the SEC's view on the shareholder proposal was, no? Or...
1: I think it's crazy.
0: Anyways, I'm going to talk to the SEC about it, see if I can run it more. Okay, we don't have that much time. I wanted to just bring up a subject that I've been uh, really interested in. And uh, last month, uh, the Business Roundtable, and I know this is something that you uh, you care a lot, or you've thought this was quite interesting as well. Uh, the Business Roundtable issued a uh, – uh, this is the organization represents CEOs and big corporations – uh, a new purpose, statement of purpose, the old statement of purpose issued in 1997 uh, really put shareholders first. The new one focuses on stakeholders. S T A K E holders and discussing the importance of customers, investing in employees, dealing fairly and ethically with suppliers, supporting communities. And at the bottom of their list of bullet points, uh, generating the long-term value for shareholders. So shareholders were, you know, number one and more important before. Now it's all these stakeholders. Uh, you know, they appear to want to put employees first, but I immediately looked at that and said, Oh, well, how, how important will employees be? We're not going to see employees, uh, Uh, get directorships on boards, I suspect, now that companies are putting employees as a top stakeholder ahead of a shareholder. So I'm just curious how your reaction to the BRT's stakeholder um, uh, 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 statement of purpose.
1: Well, I look at it as a distraction, uh, and I think they're taking a page from Trump's playbook here. Uh, Distraction is the new watchword. Uh, You know, they're distracting folks from the things we just talked about, you know, that the SEC is doing. And, uh, you know, basically, uh, while it's very good that they want to take care of stakeholders, we all want them to take care of stakeholders because in the long run, companies need to do that. But, you know, just running through their their, uh, stakeholders, customers, are they going to put an end end to uh, fast fashion and planned obsolescence? Investing in their employees, are they going to be uh, rolling out a lot of ESOPs, employee stock ownership plans, and appointing uh, workers to the board? Are they going to be dealing ethically with our suppliers? How many of them have announced fair trade practices, for example? Supporting the communities in which they work. Well, I haven't seen Apple uh, stop routing their profits to uh, through Ireland to avoid... Paying U.S. taxes, so uh, and you know, generating long-term value for shareholders. Even us shareholders are talking about transparency. We are committed to transparency and effective engagement. Well, why do we have to fight them on these political contribution proposals that ask them to be transparent in their political contributions if that's one of their values? Uh-huh. So now I v- I view it as uh, you know, distraction.
0: Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how, uh, you know, whether anything changes at some of these larger corporations that are members of the BRT in light of the stakeholder focus. And, yeah, I agree with you. I don't think that uh, we'll see.
1: But the one thing good that will come out of this is, you know, like Thomas Jefferson when he wrote the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal. You know, well, Frederick Douglass and other folks could point to that and say, hey, you're being hypocritical
0: <laughs> Uh yeah i guess we can yeah let's we'll kind of look at it look at it back that way perhaps um all right well it will be interested to see what happens with this uh brt stakeholder uh, uh statement of purpose and uh definitely interested to see what will happen with the sec's uh, new guidance and uh, verbal responses on uh, non-binding shareholder proposals uh, but so for now I appreciate uh, Jim you taking the time to speak with us this has been uh, uh, Jim McRitchie uh, runs CorpGov.net again and he as uh, one of the largest employers of non binding show proposals um, I'll be keeping a close eye to see what uh, what happens to your proposals going forward if the SEC does kind of uh, come down with uh, some tough changes and this has been the Activist Investing Today podcast with Ron Oral. so thanks for taking time alright I appreciate it